0: Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Sabbath. What a wonderful day it has been, a reminder of creation and redemption, that we can rest in the assurance that even as you made a day holy, you can make us holy, and we can rest in that assurance, that reminder every seven days. And tonight we pray for your Holy Spirit to attend us. Lord, you know my humanity and my weakness. I pray for your robe of righteousness to especially make up for my deficiency tonight and cover me. Use this weak vessel for your glory. May the Holy Spirit inspire and instruct tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I appreciate Pastor Stephen Bohr's reflection on this and I want to revisit this passage this evening as we segue into our theme here am I send me Isaiah chapter 6 I want to do a few observations before we go to our next passage this evening Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 1 in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple about the passages I've just read. One of them is that Bible scholars believe that the holy, 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 that the angels cry out could be an allusion to the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is sanctuary imagery. He's able to look into the very Shekinah glory of God and these angels, seraphim, are covering the presence of God and afterwards is the universal reaction of anyone that has seen God in verse 5. And so I said, woe is me, for I'm one undone. Now, if you go to the chapter prior to this, the, the phrase or the word woe is prevalent in chapter 5. So let's pick it up in chapter 5, verse 8. Isaiah says, woe to those who join house to house. Go to 5, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. 5 verse 18 Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. 5 verse 21 and 22. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Verse 22 Woe to mighty men at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink so the preamble to Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah says woe to that brother woe to that individual woe to that individual and then he sees God and is like woe is me when you baptize someone into the church I think the Lord kind of puts rose-colored glasses on by his grace And then those things start to get a little bit dim as they recognize that God's church, we've got some issues. They start looking at the foibles and the idiosyncrasies and the challenges of other people, and it's easy to have relative righteousness. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, hey, I'm vegan. You know what I'm talking about? Like... I'm vegetarian and I fast once a week. You look at that person and you're like, ooh, dress reform, <clears throat> gotta pray for that brother. Gotta pray for that sister. And that sister's got a temper. Oh man, but I don't have that. I praise God. I'm not like other men. Relative righteousness. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have health reform, but I don't believe in righteousness by veganism. Amen. 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 It's a fruit. We do it because we love Jesus, but it doesn't have merit. And so it's easy to look around and be like, hey, I feel pretty good. Until you look at Jesus. And then there's a beautiful tension here because there's a healthy sense of our unworthiness. You never want to make self the focus, but Jesus is the focus. And as we're making Jesus the focus, there's a tension in that focus on jesus there's a healthy sense of who we really are and then we can look at others that aren't vegan and be like hey everybody's on their walk and their journey and you can have grace and you can be gracious to other individuals we never want to go around like we're baptized in lemon juice. So here it is, Isaiah, woe, 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 sees God, woe is me, and that's a good place to be. Woe is me, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tong- with a tongue from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. This is justification. Isaiah has just experienced the gospel. He sees Christ. He sees God in his glory, senses his need, is justified. As you know... The story doesn't end there. He just doesn't sit around and celebrate and eat his haystacks and veggie links and sing kumbaya, although I love those things every once in a while. He doesn't just have community, although I love community. He doesn't just form a club and establish this little Enclave of individuals that are justified and standing around, theologizing and philosophizing about the nuances of that, although I enjoy that. That's not all he's called to do. As you well know, verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice Us. Third person, pronoun, plural. This is a conversation within the Trinity. It's not as though they went to Isaiah and said, like, you go. At least in this passage, there's a conversation within the community of the Godhead. Hey, you know, Isaiah's had this experience, and then he hears a conversation within the inner sanctum of the Trinity. Hmm. Whom shall I send? And who's going to go for us? And Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. I was born in Washington Adventist Hospital in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Right next to what was back then Columbia Union College, now Washington Adventist University. And I went to John Nevins Andrew School. Lived right there. Erie Avenue, right off of Flower, and uh, from there, if that wasn't enough, we moved to Silver Spring, Maryland, close to the General Conference. I went to Spencerville Junior Academy. And if that wasn't enough, we moved to Hagerstown, Maryland. I see some people from Hagerstown represent over there. Went to Hagerstown, Maryland, next to the Review and Herald. I lived right across the street from Mount Etna Camp and attended Highland View Academy for a couple years. And then, if that wasn't enough, when I, after I went to the seminary, was hired by the Michigan Conference because I was a single pastor that was in ordination track and the ministerial director had pity on me and didn't send me off to Escanaba to die in oblivion, single, Sent me to Bering Springs to be a youth pastor at the 1,000 member village church in order to find a wife. (laughs) It worked, by the way, praise God. Another Adventist community right next to Andrews University. So I'm very familiar with Adventist communities. And look, I praise God for them, and there's a huge blessing. But there's challenges too. Because, look, if you're just receiving and never giving, there's a body of water out in the Middle East that's always receiving but has no outlet. You know what it's called? The Dead Sea. So I'm not saying you can't have that experience in those Adventist community, but it's very easy to become comfortable. Because if you're never intentionally, proactively engaged in outreach and there's plenty of opportunities there but if you're not careful you can get into a consumerist mentality. When I pastored in Bering Springs there were people that would just go around to the latest and the greatest thing happening in town and you could go through 10 years in Bering Springs and miss every single communion because when they're having communion in one church you go to another one. And so this, this is the, the element that, that we really have to struggle with, whether you're in an Adventist community or whether you're in a big church or a small church. If you just get comfortable, there's something that happens to our Christian experience. It stagnates. And that's why God didn't just say, hey, you're justified. Let's move on. He says, come to me and then go for me. God could have called angels to do this work, but he chooses weak, frail, mortal individuals to do his ministry. If you had the opportunity to get a Bible study from the angel Gabriel or me, who would you pick? I won't be offended. Daniel chapter 9 would be a phenomenal study from the angel Gabriel. He said, let me tell you the nuances of that 70 week prophecy that I gave to Daniel years ago. I'd be like, I'm all ears. But rather than that, he chooses a, a short five foot six Korean, 6,000 years after the fall, to try to give a Bible study on Daniel 9. Why? I could mess things up. After all, the plan of salvation is the most priceless task ever given to man. All of heaven was invested in the gift of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, the bank of heaven was zero. He put it all on the table for you and me. And he calls me and you to go and be his ambassador when he has other people that are way more qualified. Look, I'm not even third string in heaven. Okay? Okay. I wouldn't even make the bench. But here we are. Desire of Ages, page 142. And he who seeks to give light to others will himself be blessed. God could, God could have reached his object in saving sinners without our aid, but in order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in his work. In the sanctuary... You come into the courtyard, you're born again, and then you come into the Holy Place experience. And as you well know, in the Holy Place, there's three articles of furniture, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the showbread. Devotional reflection on this, feed, read, air, prayer, fitness, witness. When we went to Alaska, My wife and I, first of all, I thought the Lord had forgotten about me because he was exiling me to Siberia. I said, Lord, what did I do wrong? It's one of the best things that ever happened. So we went over there, and my wife and I were married for about 10 years. We weren't planning on having kids. We were planning on fostering and so forth. And so we got sent off to Alaska. It was a great experience up there. But somehow, some way, my wife's like, hey, I think I'm pregnant. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, this can't be happening. And so I said, uh, l- hold on a minute, let me go off to the drugstore, to Walgreens, and I'm going to buy me an expensive pregnancy test, not no cheap one, one of these high-tech ones. So I went there, and I said, where are these things anyway? I go through and I'm like, oh, right, here's, it. Here's, I was like $20. I said, this, this, this is not going to be off. All right, I paid a pretty penny for this. So, we, so we're waiting there, and I, my wife's like, I can't even look at this. So I'm there, I'm looking at this thing. And I'm like, it's felt like a thousand years. And it's like, ding! And I'm like, oh. I go over there and I'm like, honey, we're going to have a baby. <laughs> and so I rush off and get prenatal vitamins, <laughs> buy all these books. I'm like, well, I mean, what do you even do here? And we're both like type A personalities. You got to understand. We're going to be ready for this birth, attended p- pregnancy, I even forgot what it was. I mean, just like these prenatal, Lamaze class, you name it. We're going through all this stuff. I had an app on my iPad (laughs) that when the contractions came, you know, beginning of contraction, end of contraction, and it was like all these analytics were coming out. So she was like in the, you know, going through the, the birth pangs and so forth. And I'm like looking at this thing and I'm like, all right, you know, we got this thing. 52 hours later. whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And I'm not even giving birth. I'm like, I'm exhausted. My wife's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like... like, Finally, the nurse says, can you put that thing away? It's messing you up. Finally, praise God. God. He's born. Mark it on the calendar, cut the umbilical cord, put on the, you know, the diaper for the first time, take the picture. And I'm like, oh, finally I can rest. And the nurse looks at me and is like, you know, you have to feed this baby like every two hours. And I'm like, yeah, nine to five, right? (laughs) She's like, no, like around the clock. And I'm like, Go to Costco. It's Alaska, man. There's like you can skate on the parking lot, like loaded up, coming out. I can't find my car. I thought I lost my mind. It's like twenty minutes. I'm like, take a deep breath. Go back to where you started. So I went back. I'm like, all right. Finally find the car. And then the sinking realization comes over me. Birth is one thing, keeping the baby alive is another. (laughs) Praise God, every year you have a birthday. (laughs) But they're two different realities. And look, friends, we have a whole lot of church members that are 30 years in Pampers, or even worse. In the NICU. They're born. You have the birthday. And it's just like, oh, next. Now, which is more important, getting married or staying married? Both. I mean, mean, granted, some people are called to be single. But if you get married, you got to stay married. Which is more important, being born or staying alive after you're born? Both. And so we face these unique dichotomies. You're born but you got to stay alive. And an integral part of staying alive is prayer, Bible study, and ministry. Every day the priest would come into the holy place with oil daily, tamid, and fill those lampstands. And the byproduct of that is light. Witnessing is the byproduct of being filled with the Holy Spirit amen. And that's an integral part of the Christian experience. If you're struggling in your Christian experience, go back and ask yourself, how's my devotional life? How's my prayer life? How's my ministry life? And usually you'll find in at least one of those areas, if not more, there's been a decline. The 1040 window is a rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. This area is often called the resistant belt and includes the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. 95% of people living in the 1040 window are unevangelized. Many have never heard the gospel message even once. This is two thirds of the world's population. More than 3.2 billion people live in the 1040 window. How much is one billion? You decided to sit down and count to a billion and you averaged one second per number, and I don't recommend you do this. It'll take you 95 years to count to one billion. There's 3.2 billion people in the 1040 window. When I, was at the, when I was at the seminary preparing for my Master's Comprehensive, I reserved a booth on the third floor of the James White Library. I'm trying to study for this thing. It's like a six-hour exam. So I'm there, and I hear this, like, psst, I'm like, oh, man. He's like, hey, man, what's your name? Booth right next to me. I'm like, my name's David. He said, my name's John Baxter. He's doing his Master's in Missiology. And he's now with Adventist Frontier Missions, a ministry that reaches out to the unreached. And so we would have this healthy banter back and forth. I was doing my Master of Arts in Theological Studies with an emphasis in historical theology, ivory tower stuff, eschatology, soteriology, harmatology. And so I said, hey, John, you know that theology drives missions, right? He said, Heresy missions drives theology it's like the chicken or the egg we go back and forth and he tells the story how he's ministering in india reaching the unreached goes to the hospital to see a patient and as he's in this big room he notices a bunch of commotion in one corner and He's talking to the individual that's there, and they know John because he's a man of prayer, and so this other group comes over and engages him and says, hey, can you pray for this boy? And so he's like, sure. So he goes over there, and he looks at the boy, and he's like, something's wrong. So he feels for a pulse, no pulse. He's not breathing, and he asks them, like, hey, how long's this boy been like this? He said, like, for hours. So they're like, can you pray for him? And he's like, in his mind, he's like, this boy's dead. But since they asked him to pray, he said, "Okay, I'll pray. So he prays, opens his eyes, nothing happens. He's like, this is awkward. He said, "Uh, I got to go get some medication at the pharmacy across the street for this other guy over here. See, I'll see you later. So he leaves, goes across the street to the pharmacy, gets the medication, comes up the stairs. It's pandemonium. The mother of the boy comes and grips him and kneels at his feet, and he says, no, 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 no. He goes over, and the boy is alive. He was raised from the dead. Never pity missionaries. Envy them. This is where the real action is, where life and death, sin and grace, heaven and hell converge. Romans chapter 10 gives a similar theme to what was presented In the book of Isaiah, Romans chapter 10, verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. And here's the clincher. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe that once you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? This is a beautiful message. The gospel is simple. It's profound. We'll be studying it throughout the ceases ages of eternity. But this, Paul synthesizes in beautiful simplicity the essence of the gospel. You call on him, you're going to be saved. Praise God. Verse 14, it becomes very uncomfortable. How then shall they call on him? In whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? In other words, a message that is not sent is as good as no message at all. Henry Martin was a Cambridge scholar, he was a genius. At the same time, he was hideous to look upon. He had warts covering his face. Stories would tell us of him watching the cricket games as a, at a distance because he was so ashamed of the way that he looked. A young lady by the name of Lydia fell in love with Henry Martin because of the mind that he had and the gentleman that he was, and they decided that they would get married. One day, Henry Martin was sitting in church, and he heard the preacher get up front, and give an appeal for India. Henry Martin was sitting there, and he felt the conviction from God calling him to minister as a missionary in India. He goes to Lydia, and he's like, "Honey, let's get married, and go to India and be a mission and be a missionary team together." He said, "Let's go." She looks at him and says, "Henry, if there's one place I never want to go. it's India." He says, how can you say that? She says, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. He walked away from her, stunned. Is it going to be Lydia or India? Lydia or India? And finally he realized it wasn't Lydia or India, it was Lydia or God. He left Lydia and went to India. Later he went to Persia. He was dragged across the desert in chains. And he died at the age of 31. Many people would say, what a waste of a life, and what a waste of a brilliant mind. But do you know what he left the world before he died? The translation of the New Testament in three languages, Arabic, Hindustani, and Persian. Jim Elliot says, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One life to live, one life to give. I give an illustration to young people. If Bill Gates came to you, and said, look, I want to make a trade, give me your penny, and I'll transfer into your bank account right now, swift, $1 billion. How many of you would do it? Every hand would go up. How many of you would be like, you know what, I have a 1972 vintage penny? I don't know, Bill. Don't call me, I'll call you. I mean, it's crazy. And yet, that's what we do with God. We're like, you know what? I don't know. Mm. Ah. And then when we give it up, we go around and give a testimony. Praise God for our testimonies. You know how much I gave up? Put it in perspective. Whether it's one penny or a thousand, the trade makes sense. John the Baptist lived to about the age of 30 never got married, never had a family, never got to see Jesus perform any miracles. He languished in prison after six months of ministry. Two years, scholars believe, on average in prison, likely was his time there. And he got his head chopped off. And Jesus turns to him and says, that's the greatest prophet. 30 years of existence for a six-month ministry, two years in prison, and that's it. And from the world's perspective, this is the greatest travesty. But from God's, John the Baptist made the right trade because he has eternity. In the end, whatever life we have to live, the right trade is to go all in on this life. My brother-in-law is a high-risk individual. Lord have mercy. I went camping with him one time and he was on these one of these side-by-sides in Colorado and and he's like, "Hey, let's go up this cliff thing." And I'm like, "Are you sure?" He said, "Yeah, let's do it. It'll be fun." And I'm like, "Fun?" I said, "All right, against my better judgment." And there I'm going up this cliff. 200 200 feet above this canyon, teetering on the side of this thing, and suddenly I get stuck. And so he has to winch this thing while I'm teetering. And I turned to my brother-in-law and said, look, I don't want to die like this. I said, I want to die for something. Not some thrill that I chose when I was not in my right mind, Adam, if you're watching, you know I love you. I want to die for a cause. I'd rather die as a martyr. I want to die because of Jesus. And I want to be all in. This is the best way to go out. Because you only have one life to live, one life to give. And we're going to die anyway. And the greatest travesty of my life that I would think is just to live comfortably my whole life, not live in life of impact, have my 401k, have my nice little nest egg, die in a nursing home, comfortable. That's a travesty for me. I want to die like the prophets. Die investing in something that's going to last. And put it all on the table. One hundred percent by the grace of God. So where do I begin? Acts one verse eight says they were to begin in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You need to begin in your Jerusalem. Your home your neighborhood, your family, your friends, and your work. That's your Jerusalem. I find it's easier to go overseas and be a missionary than my own neighborhood and my family, because they know me. God has called us to a calling that transcends our career. It used to be that we had a career that was really the front for our calling. In other words, we're like secret agents out there for God that happens to be a doctor, that happens to be a dentist, that happens to be a lawyer. But somehow we've gotten flipped around where the medium becomes our end goal. God says, look, I want to use you in a powerful way if you'll let me. It was a dream of a man that was told he was hearing voices. And this voice was telling him, Look, I want you to go down this path, take a right, take a left. And finally, when he got to this clearing, the voice said, Stop. He said, This is weird. I want you to reach down. It was like this pile of rocks, this mountain of rocks, smaller. In size, and the voice told him, Look, take these rocks and go back to your home. So he's like, Okay, so he takes just a little handful of rocks, puts them in his pocket, and in the dream, he's curious because he goes back home, What's the rocks? So he only had two or three, and he puts them under the light and looks at them. And they weren't ordinary rocks, they were diamonds. And he was extremely happy, but he was extremely sad because if he had valued or recognized the value of those rocks, he would have brought them all. Ellen White says, we won't fully recognize the value of a soul until we get to heaven. Can you imagine? I imagine the second coming in my mind, and it's going to be this tension of of these conflicting emotions. I mean, for one thing, I'm going to be like, praise God, I'm here. But, but in my imagination, as you're ascending in the cloud, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be doing a head count. You following me? Like, I'm here. Like, I'm at the second coming. Praise God, I'm here. And in the cloud, I think there's going to be a lot of, like, searching going on. You better believe it. I'm going to be like, all right, head count. My wife, all right, my son, Clara, all right, we're all here. All right, mom, dad, let's go around. So so you're starting your inner circle, and you're doing the the count, right? You're doing the count. But finally, heaven forbid, you're doing the count. And let's say someone's missing. Your son's missing. Your daughter's missing. And you're like, they've got to be here. You search the whole thing, and they're not there. And the sinking realization comes over you. They didn't make it. They didn't make it. As we wrap up this evening, I want to read the story of David Livingston as narrated by a Christian apologist. It's a little bit longer of a read, but I believe it's worth it. And I pray that as I read his life, you'll see the passion for souls that this man had. David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland, in 1813. He was born into a home where his father used to put him on his knees and read to him stories of great missionary exploits, particularly that of Carl Gutzlab, the Dutch missionary, who doubled up as a medical missionary too. Young David used to look into his father's eyes and say, ''You know, Daddy, one day I want to be a man like that. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a doctor.'' I want to serve God. David Livingston got on his knees one day and said this prayer, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me, lay any burden on me, only sustain me, sever any tie but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. And the words of God came to him. He said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He packed his bags, went off to Africa. And when he took one glimpse of Africa from the distance, he penned in his journal these words, the haunting specter of the smoke of a 1,000 villages in the morning sun had burned within my heart. He married a woman of the famous Moffat family. Mary was her name. Her father was a great missionary, and together they went to Africa. But David Livingston's life was that of an explorer, and he would move from place to place, and his only goal was Jesus in the hearts of lives and women, men and women, thousands of them. Finally, his wife and his young family couldn't keep up with him anymore. Some of his children were dying out of sickness and disease, and so he said to his wife, Mary, why don't you go home? I will see you shortly and spend some time with you. It's too dangerous for us to go on. So he sent his dear wife Mary back home, and letters would take months to exchange, but some of the fondest letters of love and romance were sent between David and Mary. And you know when he saw her the next time? Not five weeks, not five months, five years later. I'm not condemning the man nor condoning what he did. I'm just telling you what happened. Five years later, when he set his eyes upon his wife, she could not recognize him because at one stage in his jungle travels, going from place to place, he had walked into the branch of a tree that had completely blinded in one eye and marred the other. His face had become burned under the African sun to a crisp of leather, and his skin, which had not been pigmented for it, had been roasted to the point that his body could not take it any longer. "'His face marred and scarred, his eye blinded. "'At one time he had been attacked by a lion "'that had torn one of his shoulders apart. "'He had miraculously escaped. "'Now she saw her husband hobbling in "'with a marred face and disfigured countenance. "'Hours before he had arrived, they had buried his father. "'David wept because he longed to tell his dad firsthand "'of the stories his father had only told him thirdhand.' Biographical sketches tell us when David Livingston walked into any university in the British Isles, students and faculty would rise to a standing ovation because they knew they were standing in the presence of a giant of a man. Finally, he went back to his wife one day and said, Mary, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burning within my heart. We need to go back. She decided that he should go. She had to be with the children. She said, when they're all old enough, I will join you again, David. And he set off on his lonely journey to preach to the African people who were so much within his heart. Finally, after a long time, Mary joined him. And the day she set foot on African soil, she contracted a disease they had so dreaded she would contract. The very day she set foot on Africa, she got that disease. And a few days later, he was burying her. Lowered into the soil of the African earth there, an eyewitness said, David Livingston knelt beside the grave, weeping his heart out, and overheard him saying, My Jesus... (coughs) My king, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value on anything I possess or anything I may do except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy service. And through it all, the words of God came to my heart. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He picked up his belongings, walked back to his hometown village of Ujiji, When he arrived back, went to his little home there, he found that someone had played a cruel joke on him and stolen his medication that he so desperately needed because his body was racked with pain, untold pain. He walked in constant agony. And they said in one of the few points in his life, he prayed for himself. He got on his knees and said, God, you promised you'd always be with me. I need that medication if I'm to continue preaching the gospel. As he prayed, he heard steps. And as the story goes, he saw a pair of feet planted in front of him. And his countenance lifted for the first time in a long while. He was looking into the face of a white man who didn't live in Africa. He said, "'Who are you, sir?' And the man said, "'Dr. Livingston, I presume.'" Those famous words. He said, "'Yes, sir.'" "'Mr. Livingston, I'm a press reporter. I've been consigned to do a story on your life, and I want you to know two things about me. Number one, I'm the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth. Please don't try to convert me. Number two, someone has sent some medication for you. Davidson, "'Give me some medication, please.'" So Mr. Henry M. Stanley started to travel with David Livingston. Four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth knelt down on African soil and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. One of the best biographies you ever read, David Livingston, two volumes, Livingston of Africa by Henry M. Stanley. Stanley said, The power of that Christ life was awesome, and I had to buckle in. I could not hold out any longer. Finally, his body began to shrivel with high temperatures and pain. They used to carry him around from village to village on a stretcher, one day preaching from a stretcher, literally trembling. He finally looked at his two of his national brothers and said, please take me back home. I'm very, very ill. I'm very tired. I need some sleep. They brought him back to his home and were about to spill him onto his bed when he said, no, please help me on my knees. Livingston buckled down on his knees by the side of his bed, clasped his hands and started to pray. His prayers were so profound, his sanctuary so unique, that his African brothers felt it was blasphemy to stay in his single union communion with God, and they stepped out of his little room. Finally, someone came in and said, I need to see Mr. Livingston for a moment. They said, shh, quiet, please. He's praying. Five minutes went by. They looked in. He was still on his knees. Several minutes went by. They looked in. He was still on his knees. After a protracted period of time went by, they looked in. He was still on his knees. One of them felt that the man was too tired to continue to pray. He needed to get some sleep. He walked over to him, shook him by the shoulders, and inquired, Wana, Wana. Livingston fell over. He was dead. He died exactly the way he had lived in the presence of his Lord. He didn't run from that voice. He didn't wave a lamp that had no light in it. He didn't sell his soul for some earthly pleasure, but the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages had burned within itself, itself within his heart, so that he could say, My Jesus, my life, my all, I again consecrate myself to thee. And this evening, I want to make an appeal. If you want to say tonight, Lord, perhaps, yeah, I haven't made your priority my priority. But I want that to change. You want to say, Lord, I want to give me a love for souls for whom Christ died. Do you want that? Do you want to love people the way that God loves people? And say, Lord, I want to say, Here am I. Send me. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be who you want me to be. Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. And I want to make a very specific appeal tonight. If you want to say, Lord, Help me. Help me to make your priority my priority. May my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. If that's your desire, I want to invite you to come forward for special prayer here tonight. God bless you, my brother. You would say, Lord, help me to love people the way that you love people. Give me a love for souls for whom Christ died. And I believe that if we do this, he can do this for us. It's a miracle. We're all naturally selfish by nature. We love ourselves more than anything else by nature. But if we want to say tonight, Lord, help me to be selfless and live like the people of the Bible, to live with a passion that David Livingston had for souls and say, Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Praise God. Praise God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, forgive me. Forgive us for our selfish love of ease while a world around us is perishing for a lack of knowledge of you. And Lord, tonight we pray for the experience of Isaiah. Help us to look at Jesus in his glory, be touched by your love. And when we hear the call, help us to recognize that go ye means go me. Give us, Lord, a deeper desire for you. Create in us a love for souls for whom Christ died. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.